0: So thanks everyone for coming. Um, We're gonna get started. Uh, So today we're gonna talk about operationalizing machine learning. Um, And this is sort of a process that us as Deluxe are going through, so we're iterating on this. Um, So it's nothing that's been solved per se. Um, It's something we're still working on, but I think we have a lot of the pieces together. Um, And the reason that we picked this just before our intro us we, we picked this specific angle for looking at machine learning because we see a lot of people, at least from the data scientists we work with or IT people, et cetera, um, or developers, um, where they'll just look at adopting a service and then implementing it. Um, but really, does it have worth from an engineering perspective or does it have worth from a business perspective? Like, are you right, using the right tool for the job and is it well integrated into your pipeline? So we try to focus on that and how we build around and for that. So my name is Konstantin volms and Abhishek Um So we both work on um, a platform called Deluxe One, um, and I'll get into that as well. But just for the agenda um, today, we 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 thought you know we thought of breaking it up into a couple sections here. So essentially, the, the most important one, and this is really relevant if you think about what we do for things for supply chain, for example. Um, a lot of patterns for, say, media in the cloud are actually anti-patterns for us um, from like a design perspective or architecture perspective. And that's simply because of the nature and the types of files we have to move around and process. Um, so I think it helps to understand that um, in order to understand how we arrived and at the uh, you know, various technical pieces that we use. Um, So we'll go from there into um, what our strategy is and what our tooling is, um, as sort of like a core for uh, ML substrate, if you will. Um, And then Abs will talk about what our actual platform architecture looks like, um, how we separate out uh, AWS accounts, where we put content, where we process things, et cetera. Um, After that, we'll sort of bring everything together and quickly go through a specific example um, of how we process data. Um, and then we thought instead of just you know, talking at the audience about all of these things we're doing, we'd open it up for Q and A and also talk about some of the things that we're trying to bring onto a cloud compute native type approach as well. So hopefully that'll be interesting. Um, so just to get started, um, I don't know if how many of you are familiar with Deluxe. Um, But if you're not, um, it's a company that's been around um, since, uh, you know, over 100 years. Um, Started with uh, film processing, but really if you look at what does Deluxe do, um, it's pretty much everything from creation of content as it comes off a camera all the way to distribution and fulfillment of that content. Um, And this is important for us because whatever we build, we potentially look at could it also go outside of what we're doing now and be applied to, say, um, other lines of business that are lifting and shifting their pipelines and their media processing onto, say, AWS? How can we then retool or reuse our tooling um, to allow them to take benefit of that as well without re, you know, reinventing the wheel? Um, so if you look at this across like you know, from source to destination here, um, mastering, Uh, of feature film, um, episodic, et cetera, uh, management of the catalogs for that content, um, advanced formats like IMF packaging, et cetera. Um, And it's also important to note here that uh, when we deal with advanced formats that may go into a library and we may have to process that at a later stage, so it could be years down. Uh, so there's a lot of data that builds up in the system, right, in terms of how do we deal with different codecs and protocols and delivery for that, et cetera. Um, also encoding distribution, both for theater, theatrical, um, as well as, uh, for example, digital, like OTT deliveries, et cetera. Um, and then if you mix in things like localization, multiple languages, et cetera, distribution of that data to different uh, countries, for example, as orders for supply chain, all of these things sort of factor in and influence each other. Um, so we, we thought, you know, where, where should we start, right? And um, you'll, you'll see we have like a number of, a number of these um, title screens have graphics behind them. Um, and most of these come from uh, other parts of the Deluxe family. So these are typically feature films or episodic films that say Method or eFilm uh, or other entities have worked on either doing say color grading or visual effects or other types of things. Um, But these are also things we're starting to look at now and we'll talk about that later. Um, But at least for us in terms of uh, supply chain, right? um, where do you start? You start with the asset, right? So um, the weight here is we have to process a uh, a certain size of asset and that can vary from 25 to 500 plus gigabytes for an asset. Um, so, there's a challenge there. How can I store and process that file fastly and efficiently? Um, and then, if you look at how many assets are in a title, right, um, those could be 10 to 100 plus. And you can think of that as probably um, you know, something like your, your, vid- your core video asset, and then all of your additional audio tracks, poster files in multiple languages, subtitle files. All of these things comprise uh, what could you know, be factored into a package for delivery. Um, and then if we look at outputs, this is where it gets more interesting. Um, if we have to then deliver these assets to multiple locations around the globe, uh, we can potentially be looking at, say, taking um, a mezzanine asset or a, you know, what we call a heavy asset, one of these uh, large and weighty assets, and creating, say, an HLS output for, say, a feature film, And that may have tens of thousands of chunks to get delivered, encrypted, et cetera. Um, so from source to sync, Um, You know, if you then look at distribution as the other end of this spectrum, if you will, um, as to how these assets are delivered, um, there's a scale at which we have to uh, be cognizant of in terms of the operation of the company, right? So um, you can see here 4.5 plus petabytes get delivered. Um, And I should add like a a lot of this uh, might be on legacy and not fully cloud uh, lifted into the cloud per se. Um, But these are things that we have to bear in mind as we design, because eventually we're going to have to deal with these challenges from the business perspective. Um, So you can see the number of endpoints and also the number of assets that are delivered delivered. So there's a high velocity and amount of uh, data, if you will. Um, And then because everyone likes metrics, right? um, There are a whole bunch of metrics here. Um, This is more granular um, as to, you know, how many formats do we have to support for transcoding. So um, for all these, uh, you know, say PS3, PS4, Fire TV, um, whatever device has to get delivered to might need a specific format to support delivery. So that's a transcode profile that we then have to look up and transcode to that spec for it to be playable. so these are all like multiplying factors on terms, in terms of complexity that we may have to deal with. Um, if we then drive down to like, which of these influence like tech decisions, like how we design the platform, right? We know that we have to deal with a certain velocity and amount of content coming into the platform. Uh, we know that there's a certain amount of assets that get ingested. Um, and then we know that we have to provide a certain SLA support a certain amount of formats and actually deliver those out. Right. Um, so I'll get to where we looked at inserting things like machine learning into this. Um, but it's important to understand here that these are things that we can't disrupt in this pipeline right in the platform. Um, and then specifically, um, I guess we look at it as not really machine learning, but more enhanced computation because if we can solve problems, uh, mathematically, versus using say deep learning, we get an absolute versus a confidence factor. And if we can be 100% confident that uh, whatever we have computed is valid, we can fully automate that workflow, right? So if you then look at these same points and you look at, okay, what is important or what could we apply things like enhanced computation or machine learning to, um, obviously, the automation that goes through all of these things being processed, all of the an- assets being ingested, that data is available for us to do things like enrichment against, if we're doing things like calculating proxies. Um, so that's sort of like that in a nutshell, right? To give you an idea of the, the business challenge or the, the challenge we have to deal with. Right? So we, we've been looking at that like over, I'd say maybe six, eight months plus, right? Something right. in that range. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, 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 we're const, constantly iterating on this, right? So what is our, what is our strategy for applying machine learning to these use cases? And I think the first one is like, you start with feature engineering, right? Um, so our feature engineering is basically the asset and a pivot on that, right? So we look at, okay, if we have these size of assets, what's the, most computationally effective way to process those very fast. Um, So that could be creating a low resolution proxy, but then what's the resolution that we need for the machine learning or deep learning or image recognition to be actually effective at that resolution for the size of an object in say a scene. So that's one problem. Um, The other problem is things like conformance, and this is more for supply chain, right? So if I have an asset land that has an audio track and then I get a secondary audio track uh, that is uploaded, I need to be able to automatically conform and map these two together. Um, and that way I can remove what was typically done by a human out of the equation. So it reduces our SLA and it lets us deliver things fully automated without a human making mistakes. Um, so that's another area. Um, and then the third area is if we're doing things like um, deep learning, creating m- machine learning models, uh, or creating data sets, um, there's that volume of content we have to deal with. So, how do we effectively do things like, say, image fingerprinting and then store that data effectively in a database? Um, so, that's like one of the challenges that we've had um, in terms of if I have hundreds of thousands of fingerprints, how do I do a quick lookup against that? without sort of having this downward ramp or downward spiral, uh, you know, of say database ineffectiveness, uh, if you will. Um, So if we look at that, you know, taking those earlier metrics and then looking from a supply chain and a content processing perspective, um, what are we doing with that? So these are all active projects. Um, Some of them are actually in production, some of them are still um, in a design phase. Um, But essentially, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing here. Um, But effectively, for supply chain, there's a subset of these, right? So we're doing things like spectrum analysis for audio fingerprinting, for that earlier, that conformance I was talking about, uh, as one example. Um, We're also um, doing things like video processing for things like automated um, textless master. So um, that's a situation where you have um, a media file that has text on it um, you want to find the matching media file that doesn't have that, and extract the frames and put them into the Texas master. And you can think of lots of use cases for that, right? Where one language is burnt into the file, but I need to distribute it in, uh, say, uh, a country that doesn't speak that language, and I want to be able to uh, either burn in new languages um, or potentially just overlay or not even show that on the file. Um, and then deep learning is, is another area, right? So We're doing things like rotoscoping um, to take faces out. Um, We're doing things like, um, how do I do, uh, from an automated perspective, figure out if there are logos or people's faces at the bottom of a video in order to reposition subtitles to the top. Um, So some of these actually have best practices or industry um, practices that you have to do, right? It's, It's not an either or, or we don't have to do it. So so taking that, um, you know, if we look at what's the service stack that we built for this, right, to take care of all of these use cases, if you will. Um, And probably, you know, many of you that are familiar with AWS services, SageMaker, et cetera, you probably notice that those are absent here. Um, And there's a a real reason that those are absent. We are looking at them. So we've gone through multiple iterations of, um, you know, could we use these services? Could we adapt that? But really we have a infrastructure full CI CD pipeline right now that is built on a number of pieces that was easily adaptable um, to use things like ML. So if you think of what's the easiest way to do that, um, all of our stuff is Dockerized right now. Um, So all of our services are Dockerized. Um, We use nomad and vault uh, console, et cetera, pretty heavily um, with containers and Spark is a natural fit for that, right? So it allows us to do things like use the same cluster infrastructure that Abs will talk about later, um, but be able to use that for deploying either uh, deep deep learning or machine learning or training, as well as the inference um, in terms of the lookups, et cetera. Um, The tool set is pretty, pretty common, right? So we use a lot of things like FFMPEG um, we use things like uh, DLib for like spectral plots, et cetera. Um, we use things like TensorFlow, it, et cetera, um, and then commercial partners to fill out the voids, right? So it's a combination of a lot of these things, and we're really consuming um, AWS primitives, if you will, right? So things like S3, EC2, um, auto-scaling, all of these common things form our base, and then we build on top of that. Um, and this essentially makes up our service stack, if you will. Um, so, one other thing I wanted to talk about here is uh, like the, the, one, the one thing we looked at in terms of how do we, what's our strategy for this, um, is there, there are three sections here, right? And if you look at this from the left to the right, this, this is like a mode of where um, potentially I'm a company or a startup or whatever looking to take on ML. Um, I can do it quick and it's easy. Um, if I just have an inference pipeline with a managed service, right? Service provider manages the model for me. I just feed it data, I get results back, I'm done. I have nothing else to do. Um, That's an easy model, but ours is essentially an environment, if you think about the right-hand side here is something you might see with, say, um, a third-party ML um, company, if you will, providing you ML services, right? So they are multi tenant Um, They have multiple training pipelines you can potentially control those as well, but you would launch a service like this um, as say an ML based company right using the right hand side of this equation. Um, But really internally we have to facilitate that for all of these business units um, that we have as well as our internal use cases. Um, So ours more maps to Uh, not really the left side of the equation, but the right side, right? Because we need to control a training pipeline um, because we have certain custom workflows that, uh, you know, off-the-shelf inference pipeline couldn't tackle for us. Um, We also have business approval, right? So um, we want our, say, platform operations to have input into what are valid use cases for machine learning. Um, So it's not driven entirely by, say, the development team or the, Um, Data science team if you will Um, so they'll come up with that and they'll generate Policies, right? So there's that control over what's valid training data um, Are you guys on the rails or off the rails? Um, And then is this actually valid in a use case for the business across multiple entities? And then just to you know, what does the service integration look like for this right so um, this diagram here is basically uh, a portion of supply chain processing that we do. Um, and essentially there are a couple main parts here, so I wouldn't try and read the text here, apologies, it's a little small. Um, but essentially, we're going from ingest, um, we have user and interface, user interface, uh, and API uh, interfaces to the system, and then we have a notion of delivery, so end-to-end movement of data, right? Um, So if we look at where could we apply apply machine learning the natural part to put this or the natural uh, place to put this would be uh, Materials analysis in other words as the content comes in. Let's analyze the metadata. Let's extract it Um, But we're potentially already curating that Um, The other place to do this is potentially in the actual workflow, right? So uh, we utilize conductor for a lot of our workflows Um, and we could bake it into there to do ML analysis at that point in time. And there are a number of these as you go through this in terms of where we could apply uh, machine machine learning. But I'll hand it over to Abs to talk about uh, platform and architecture.
1: Hi, guys. So I'll talk about the platform and the architecture um, that drives everything that he just said. Um, so when designing the platform, he kind of mentioned some of the requirements we had to look at, but, um, there's a lot more that we had to consider as part of designing the platform. Um, so these are some of the features that we took into account, um, when designing the platform security being the top one, um, just because we do, we do contain studio content. It may be pre-release content. And at the end of the day, we're on the hook for it. Um, It's our responsibility to take care of that content. So security is very paradigm um, in the whole uh, architecture. Um, The second one is content gravity. Um, As you guys all know, media content is very heavy, very large. So a lot of times, it's not possible to move the data. Even though it is possible, it may take days. It may take hours. Um, So you want to try to limit the movement of data. Um, The next one was processing affinity. Um, That's also along the lines of uh, content gravity, which is... Do I move the data to the process or do I move the process to the data? So depending on which one is more efficient, we're able to switch between those two models. Um, the obvious one horizontal scale. Most expected for most platforms these days, um, s- distributed services. Um, so originally we were a very monolithic model. Um, and as part of this design, we broke them up into several microservices um, so that we don't have a single point of failure. Um, We're not, one change is not taking the whole system down. Um, But just common microservice related um, paradigms uh, are at play here as well. Um, Commonality, so we also wanted to make sure that from a developer perspective or from a platform customer perspective, everybody had a single pane of glass going in. So whether you were writing a microservice, whether you were doing some sort of ML computation, building a model, training a model, running some batch process, we wanted to make sure that the experience is the same. Um, And the reason for that would be, so when you grow and you add more services, it's not, hey, now I gotta learn this new piece of technology, or maybe I gotta learn this new piece of technology. Um, It's the same experience, so you can hit the ground running given that they've already designed other services uh, to leverage the platform. Um, So moving on to scheduling, Scheduling is one of our core components on how we're able to maintain our SLAs. Um, So starting with process and content gravity, we use process and content gravity to decide how to schedule the job. So as an example, let's say I have a terabyte file. Um, Rather than trying to say, pull down the file, do some work on it, and then push it back up, we would schedule the process in a place where it's closer. We cut the time down in terms of how much time it takes in transit. Um, We also cut down on cost, right? Egress cost, ingress cost. Um, We can schedule it such such that we're in a given region and that way we don't take the cost of egress. Um, Transmit time, as I said, and then data awareness. These kind of all go hand in hand together, but these are kind of like three bullet points that we use to schedule content and process it accordingly. Second big item is access. Um, In terms of access, what is the process allowed to access, especially when it comes to content? So isolation is very important. Depending on the scope of your process and the scope of your service, your service gets scheduled accordingly. And that way, it's like a sandbox, if you may, for that process where it is only able to access things that it absolutely needs. Otherwise, you are not scheduled in that isolation zone, if you may. Second one would be internet, your customer-facing services or internet-facing services. Obviously, similar to a DMZ, have those isolated out as well. Um, Third one is content. Given the the scrutiny around content, content in itself is isolated in its own area where there is no egress, there is no ingress. It's not even a routable network. It's a closed network, completely locked down. And then to access that content, you would need permissions or policies in order to do that. Um, The fourth one is partners and clients. So studios will give us content. We'll do some work against it, sorry. um, And then we'll deliver it back out. The area in which we accept content versus the area through which we deliver the content is also isolated out in that we only want right access for data coming in into certain locations. And then for delivery, we may only want read access, certain sources and certain destinations. Um, So for processing, aside from the, the two that I mentioned earlier in terms of scheduling, we also take into account what the process is going to do in order to schedule the job. So does it need a CPU? Does it need a GPU? Can it run in a container? Does it just run as a regular process? Is it a batch job? Is it a long-running service? Um, Priorities, right? Preemption, shared clusters. All of these items together culminate to schedule a given job. So we'll have a a Spark job will never run in certain clusters, like I said earlier, because of the isolation. Because it just won't be available there. If you're not allowed to, it will not be there. Shared clusters are clusters where you need the crosstalk between these isolation zones. So you may have a service that's on the internet, but then you may have another service that needs to talk to content. You don't want to expose that service directly, but the other internet-facing service may need to talk to the content service. Um, so those, in those cases, there's separate other zones that kind of allow you that sort of access, right? Communication. So now we have all of these processes running. We have all of these services deployed. Um, the big question is, how do I locate these services? So you use service discovery SCD um, console. Um, we use console um, to locate services. Now that you have the services and they're locatable and you can discover them, there's still the looming question of authentication, authorization, access control. Um, and then exposing those services out to the internet or out to something customer-facing. Um, so we use uh, a tool called Fabio. It's an open source uh, proxy. And we've extended it to allow us to, in line, do authentication, authorization, and policy-based access control. So you can draw a parallel with, say, Envoy, where Envoy is also a proxy. Imagine taking Envoy, if you're familiar with that, and just adding the. Uh, authorization, access control um, to it. So when a service gets deployed, they inherently have those constructs available to them um, and they don't have to worry about, hey, did I handle my session correctly? Oh, did I secure this endpoint? Um, That kind of gets abstracted away as a common item to all processes and services. Um, And then to communicate between all of these services and processes, we use um, AMQ as the backend, and we wrote a thin layer, which we call Shotgun on Top, to kind of abstract that out so we can be back-end agnostic. So come tomorrow, we say, hey, AMQ is not working out for us. Or we've hit the threshold at which we can scale. Maybe we need to switch to Kafka. Maybe we need to switch to something else. Um, but having that thin layer in the front allows us to agnostically switch out the back-end without having to impact another 100 services that then will have to go and change their code for this new backend that we need to use. Um, Finally, configuration. This is what drives almost everything. Um, SSL, logging, monitoring, metrics, storing your secrets, retrieving your secrets, these are all configuration values that each service owner or each process can um, include as part of their deployment and those are taken into account to provide the automatic authentication, the automatic load balancing, um, policy-based access control, Um, so you're not going in and now saying hey let me configure my logging or my metrics Um, if you deploy to the platform you get those for free finally all of this we control through a single nomad job Um, this is a deployment descriptor Um, but this one job file contains all of the stuff that I just mentioned so your load balancing does my service need authentication does my spark job have access to this content to perform some work against, Um, to the point where when processes or jobs run, all secrets are divvied out dynamically. So in the case of our ML pipeline, even the person executing the job does not have access to the content. It is dynamically generated. When the job is done, those credentials disappear. So I'll go over now a little bit of how the isolation zones we call enclaves, are set up. um, And there's about five of them. I think we're missing one here. But the core one is your shared enclave. Um, This is where all the CI CD is. This is where all your management happens. Um, This is where all your operational um, folks interact with the the platform. Um, Your secrets, your passwords, your key rotation, um, basically all of management happens from this one place or this one isolation zone. And this one is special because it allows, it has actually access to all the other zones to actually schedule work or manage them. But access into this cluster obviously is fairly restricted. So moving on to the internet facing zone, this is where we, we will allow customers to interact with the platform, with, with Deluxe One. Um, this is where they upload the content, potentially. This is where they would check the status on their order, um, among other things. If they need access to APIs, this is where they would come in through. But they, all services that would be customer-facing or internet-facing would be in this isolation zone. And then input, output. This is the zone where content lands. So there's nothing other than content being delivered to us coming into this zone. So this zone is special in that you can only write to it. You can't delete. Once it's written, it's written. Um, And it's a one-way. It's a unidirectional path. Um, So that way, the content provider can put stuff in, but they're not allowed to remove or access other portions of it. The content zone. This is essentially a separate AWS account where everything is locked down. There's no internet access, it's not even routable, it's all internal, Um, no users, nothing. It's considered like a blank slate account. And so this one is obviously guarded. The only thing you see happening in this account is rebalancing of data. Say I wanna move from one bucket to another. I need to move data from this one account A into our account into B. Um, I want to put in a Glacier request for restores. But all content management, or the data movement of the content, happens in this one zone with no external access. <coughs> Finally, your, the crunch net zone, if you may. This is where all the fun stuff happens. This is where all the work is done, as you see. This is where transcoding happens. This is where the machine learning jobs run. This is where localization runs, fingerprinting. Um, Anything that needs to touch content runs in this zone. So now we have a full audit trail of who touched the content, when, what they did with it, what they wrote out, et cetera. So together, all of these different isolation zones together will then bubble up the whole platform, and then depending on the service or the job or the type of work or workflow you are trying to Uh, employee, it will schedule accordingly. Now to bring all of this together, I know I gave you guys a lot of facts, um, but I'll go through a quick example of of what one of our ML uh, computational enhancement pipelines look like. Um, So here we have the services block, the shared block, content access, and then content storage. If you see these will line up with the With the circular diagram you saw earlier Um, so if a user say wants to better let's say we get a piece of content piece of content lands either a user or some automated process will trigger the first step to it which is the services block so that'll actually trigger a spark job Um, that spark job in turn will launch n number of other jobs and start reading the data and fingerprinting it once it's done stores it into the fingerprinting database, and then we move on to the next step. So it reads the data from the VFS box you see there, does some work, once it's done, updates the fingerprinting database, and then moves on. So anytime a piece of content lands, we just run through this cycle. And that's your, call it your input phase if you may. Um, And then once those are handled, Then we get into the actual details of the fingerprinting. So we have two services, one called Deja Vu and the other one called PHASH. Um, PHASH stands for per, per, I always get this one wrong, so I'm gonna defer it to him. Perceptual. Perceptual (laughs) hashing. Um, The first one does audio fingerprinting. The second one does video fingerprinting. Um, And those follow all the same algorithms and paradigms that Khan mentioned earlier. Um, For the audio portion is Deja Vu, and then the the video uh, fingerprinting on phash. And then finally, once all of this is done, the content goes to the uh, content storage account. And that's the end of that pipeline. Now, the details of that pipeline I'll hand over to Khan to go over exactly what these individual pieces like deja vu or phash employ to kind of do the fingerprinting. Thanks.
0: So I guess uh, for some of you like, this is the one slide that matters, right? (laughs) Um, So just to explain and and if you look at this from perspective of there's data prep on, on the left, right? That's blocked out and there's data analysis on the right that's blocked out. And you can sort of look at this as a flow from, I need to extract the waveform, right? So in other words, I'm taking the input codec, I'm decoding it, converting it to PCM data I'm then taking the samples per second, I'm then sampling that, putting that into buckets, and then analyzing and fingerprinting each one of those as an example. So it's basically extracting the waveform here, uh, and then pivoting the waveform for frequency and spectral analysis. And you could probably start to see, like if you were looking at other ways to do this, besides what we have here, that this path could potentially go two ways, right? So we could potentially take the spectral um, frequency that's been plotted here, right? Um, and pass this through a deep learning pipeline. Um, and then we could do things like image recognition against that using a pre-trained model and try to figure out, does this match up? Is it a certain language, et cetera? And we do that for some things, um, but for these types of use cases, like I talked about earlier, um, you know, you, you have this, you could go this direction of I'm gonna use deep learning, Um, and then I'm gonna have a confidence factor and then it becomes exponentially harder um, for you to basically conform all the data because there's so much data coming in. How do we know that 80 percentile is good enough for us to automatically conform this data, right? We don't. Um, So the, the, the problem here is then if you decide not to go that route, then you're going down pure mathematical and frequency analysis route, right? Which is actually the data, data analysis route that we have on the right-hand side here. So we're not passing this to a model, but we're using things um, like data bucketing that you might see in deep learning, right? Um, these are like common pa- uh, patterns, if you will. Um, but we're also doing other things, like how do we do, do identification? So for example, we'll take that frequency analysis band And you can see the tooling is actually listed on the bottom here. So we're not using anything really fancy, if you will. It's just a lot of Python code or Go or whatever we decide to use to solve that equation. Um, But we're essentially extracting, normalizing, plotting, and then doing something with that. Um, So things like Matplotlib, uh, Librosa, for example, for the spectral analysis or image hashing, these are all like core things for for Python that most people use. Um, And then on the right-hand side, same kind of thing, right? So could do FFT or we could use CQT that's built into the Librosa libraries, right, as one example. Um, But essentially for this part of the equation that we decided to go on the right-hand side here, it gives us a finite outcome that we can then say this is good enough from, say, a ranking, if you will, um, and that's another problem we have. If we use different types of models, how do, how do we rank that? But that's another, another topic for discussion. Um, but essentially, we'll do things like peak detection, uh, and then we'll use libraries like FastDTW, for example, to do things like time slew or stretch um, prediction or analysis. So you can think of, if I land a first audio file, I fingerprint it, I bring a second one in, But for some reason, it's been time-stretched. How do I map those peaks together, right? So DTW is obviously one mechanism you can use for that. Um, And then some of the guys on the data science team, they're also using other interesting tooling, right? So we've looked at things like AstroAlign, which is actually for alignment of um, uh, astral images. Um, And it does it by, you can think of like, a field with a number of people in it, how do I line those and see if it's the same thing, but I potentially have a slight offset in where that is image-wise. So these are all interesting tools that we're basically building together into this pipeline that runs as a job that Abs was talking about. Um, So that's that's one example. Um, So like I said earlier, we thought we'd talk maybe a little about what we're working on now that we haven't actually deployed in the cloud. as well as open it up for any Q&A. Um, and we also wanted to say thank you to, we're actually a pretty small team that works on this, um, but these are our, you know, if you look at data science and platform team for all these pieces, um, there's a core bunch of folks that work on this. Um, so I guess we'd take any questions. Yeah, so the question is, do we allow developers to install their own tooling on the images? And
1: yes. For the most part, yes. Unless we've identified that it's a complete no-no or there's a massive anti-pattern, then we'll kind of guide them to say, yeah, don't do this. Um, But we want to give them the freedom as well so that they can experiment and they can come up with good ideas. Um, But yeah.
0: Yeah, we, we don't really restrict the uh, language. Um, we don't restrict the tooling, but it's mainly from perspective of um, auditing or security or how, those, how that application code is, say, accessing things like databases or how frequently is it accessing things like S3, is it doing the right way, et cetera, right? So that's more where we will conform those things or provide guidance for that but we won't try and drive people to any specific tool set.
1: Like our first iteration when we were copying content, it was just a singular copy. Single thread, copy it over, right? So over time, we see that, then we'll say, you know what? Instead, do a couple of parallels, do it, uh, uh, apply chunking. Um, so that's where we'll kind of interject, if you may. But otherwise, not really.
0: Any other questions? Go ahead. Uh, four five of data that you're Sorry, can you repeat it? Yeah, okay, how do you manage the of these tens, if not hundreds of petabytes of data that you So, the question is how do you manage the cost of um, all of these petabytes worth of data that you're storing? Um, I think you really have to look at it in comparison to how you might have been doing that on prem. Um, and the TCO is that applies to how you might do it in the cloud, right? So um, we take advantage of things like obviously everything gets life-cycled into Glacier, right? Um, And if we do a restore, it's a batch restore, so there's a certain queue before things get pulled from that. Um, There's a finite set of time that they're restored for for us to be able to do the work against that. So if it's a transcode, we will know that it will complete in X amount of time for Y amount of say, a feature. And we're sort of lucky for these kinds of things because dealing with episodic or feature-based content, many of these things are within the same bucket of duration. So we can get an estimate or a guesstimate of how long say a spot fleet is gonna to take to process and transcode that. So it's really controlling that life cycle, right? And then offsetting it against all the sands, all the tape-based storage, all the people to manage that on-prem that you might have done before that you can now automate uh, in the cloud, if you will. Did you build your own so, yes, so um, a lot of the question was did we build our own platform for this? Um, a lot of the tooling we're using is AWS-specific, like the tooling I talked about, but it's more the core and the primitives. Um, But everything else that we do on top of that, um, if it's, for example, scheduling jobs, um, running them through pipelines, um, service or batch-based processing, that's all what we've built, right? So that that one diagram I showed with that full supply chain flow, those are all individual services that touch and manipulate the content as part of this platform. Uh,
2: I have three questions. Yes. how do you manage transfer of petabytes of data to the cloud? Do you use any special
0: tools or? Slowly but surely. <laughs> <laughs> so the question was, how do you manage the transfer of petabytes of content to the cloud? Um, so there are a number of ways to do it, right? And probably speaking wider than our use case because we have certain security constraints on the manner at which we can bring content into the cloud and then secure it, right? Um, but essentially... Uh, you know, it, it's either direct connect uh, as one avenue, right, or public internet if you have uh, sufficient connectivity from on-prem to get there, right. Um, and then the second part of that equation is um, it's more specific to what we do. So uh, we also use things like Aspera, for example, so UDP-based acceleration. There are many other options out there, um, Signiant, etc. There are some. I think there are some open-source yeah. options too, right. Um, but that's one one avenue to look at. You know, we we don't use things like transfer acceleration because we're actually fairly close to the region where we need to land content. Um, but like I said, it's a it's a it's a pipeline. So it's also a human-based pipeline, right? Of of them digitizing tapes, putting them into a transfer server, and then basically having that cranking at line speed 24/7, right? So. If you can do that in multiple parallel paths, um, and we haven't even talked about things like Snowball, et cetera, yet, but if you can do it that fashion, um, then you can sort of project how much content you will land in AWS, right? Um, Yeah, you had another question?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah, we have used a combination of Aspera and Snowball. Um, The second one is, do you maintain any Docker registry?
1: Yes, we do. We have, right now we're using ECR. Um, We're looking at uh, just swapping out the ECR part for just a a Docker distribution and then um, still back it with S3 just because of the SLA's on ECR. But so far we're just using ECR, it's private. So that, that shared zone that I was talking about, that's where all the images live as well. That's where the registry lives. So once again, common things, live in there and then we manage that registry. Um, And as part of the onboarding, we also take care of creating, setting up the policies and and just getting them bootstrapped uh, and available to the service.
2: Okay, third quick question. Uh, You mentioned you have certain guardrails for the docker in terms of uh, tools or security and the version control of the dockers. So do you automate it or is it manual or how do you do it?
1: Which portion? Upgrading Docker itself? Uh, the images? The containers?
2: Uh, well, first of all, if, if version control is maintained, and how do you check the guardrails, like uh, on security issues, or if any tools that are not allowed here? Yeah.
1: So everything is driven from the CI CD pipeline. So a single Git push drives the whole pipeline, short of you deploying to like a production environment, which, it, which is on purpose a manual process. Everything else is automated. Now, as part of that automation, like I mentioned earlier, things like authentication, it's not the developer's problem. It's a platform service that gets provided. You just tell us that you need authentication. Then the developer is responsible for creating his policies and roles. So that's one way we ensure the security and make sure we're not leaking. Um, The second one is inline scans as part of the CI CD pipeline. So as the build completes, the image may complete, then there may be n number of processes that may scan each layer with something like Black Duck or whatever um, to kind of see, okay, what did they put in their layer? Um, But the idea being then we would just piggyback off of that. And once all of those passed, then the gate would open for them to actually deploy that artifact.
2: Sorry, that brings to another question on the container security. Uh, what are you using at the moment?
1: In which in which context to scan the images or scan the images? Right now we're using something called Black Duck. Sorry, Black Duck.
2: Black Duck. Okay.
0: Any other questions? I think one question.
1: Thanks. You, you mentioned that uh, you uh, you build some tool in house and some tool using uh, Amazon. What about the AI and machine learning stack? Are you um, develop in house most of all?
0: Yeah, most of most of that we develop in house. Um, I'd, I'd say the approach of the data science team is like I said, we we deal with a large amount of content with a high velocity, right? So. Um, like I talked about earlier, sometimes we, we absolutely have to have an absolute <laughs> as opposed to a confidence scoring factor. Um, but yeah, all of the, almost everything we're doing is in-house. So uh, we will use other things like Keras, the TensorFlow, et cetera, right? So common things out there, but we'll containerize that. Um, but then we'll also use some tools like potentially recognition, right, as part of like rotoscoping, right, to identify faces. Um, yeah, so it, it's a, I'd largely say it's, it's a mix, but a lot of it is in-house, and we try to solve it uh, from the perspective of, this would be really easy to solve with ML or DL or AI, if you will is there a way for us to more effectively just do this through programming and math and solve the problem that way so i'd say that's sort of the approach that we have
1: thanks my second question is that as you know that a customer nowadays asking more reach uh, entertainment metadata right so what's your strategy as DLox to
2: provide more metadata uh like keywords sentimental
1: indicators um casting crew like uh, celebrity yeah. facing.
0: so that that's all managed through the platform. A, a lot of that comes from the studios or is crea- curated, if you will, by the supplier of the content. Uh, so for example, keywords, et cetera, um, synopses, um, the genres, etc., cetera, um, things like the windows for the content to be available, that's all highly curated, right? As is um, things like the subtitles, right? So that's that's done through mostly platforms like Sphera, that's also part of um, Deluxe, um, but through localization platform, right? And you can think of that like our equivalent of Mechanical Turk, but for language localization. So we do have, like we have the ability to do, um, for example, we could say, oh, Team X, we're gonna do a work order for you guys to go off and process all of this stuff so that we can label it and then use it for deep learning. So that's how internally we're able to reutilize resources without having to farm that out, right? So I think having the content and being able to do that is key for things like deep learning, if you will. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but it's somewhat related.
1: I mean, to add to that, like you said, most of it is static, either provided or some human puts it in, Um, but there are certain divisions that do actually will do recognition on, say, Yoda, right? find yoda give me all the scenes that has yoda in it Um, and the reason why i picked yoda as an example because if you think about it from an algorithmic perspective it's a lot i don't want to say simpler but it would be a bit more straightforward given yoda's features versus identify con in a picture so there are some areas where we do take where we can where it's it's fairly easy i'm not gonna i'm using that very carefully but it's not some far fetched thing where the confidence value is gonna be moot. Um, things like Yoda or a lightsaber, something that's just an odd shape that can easily be identified, we do employ some um, labeling based on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's like a key use case in that if you took something off the shelf, it would recognize, say, vectors on a human face, right? But for like a cartoon, uh, or a sci-fi character, right? It, it might not even recognize that, or be able to label it per se. So, for a lot of those kind of like, and we have to deal with these kinds of es- esoteric use cases, right? Because of the types of content we process too. Um, a lot of those use cases, we're going to use things like custom-trained models um, from that perspective. Um, I mean, that that sort of gets into the like the what's next, right? That's that's one aspect. The other aspect is we're looking at things like um, color grading. Like for example, um, could we use machine learning or AI or deep learning or just mathematical functions um, to take um, say footage that has been graded um, by an artist and it could be to, to basically to normalize it so that you can do VFX on top of that, right? So this is like a, uh, a color LUT or a lookup table, right? Which is, you can think of it like as a 3D cube and it's a one-way set of mathematical functions. Um, but there's complexity because it is one way. So could you use something like deep learning to have an artist work on content with a certain look to it? Um, and color grading isn't really, you know, just in the contrast and the balance, etc. It's more of like, what, what is the artistic look of the film? So it could be you know, deeper browns, et cetera. But take that from an artist, let them do a couple frames or a couple plates, as we call them, and then transfer that either to the rest of the scene or to all the other episodes in, in that uh, series, right? Um, so like a good example of what I mean by that, um, and we're not actually doing this yet, but it's, it's like a kind of a use case, right? If you looked at like, say, a show like The Walking Dead versus Fear the Walking Dead, if you watch those two shows, the one has a more really gritty and brown tint to it. And it's specifically to do things like invoke you know, uh, fear or loathing or whatever in the viewer right, from an emotional perspective. And that's usually done by artists. Right? So how do we actually use ML to transfer that? Um, the challenge that we have there with those kinds of use cases not being on the cloud yet is because each one of those plates or frames is about 130 megabytes each, right? So, it's a different type of problem we have to solve before we can then figure out how to do the ML against it. Any other questions? Yeah. How did you convince the
1: studios about security side to insurance policies in place? So we were actually talking, we're laughing because yeah. we were talking about this at lunch. Um, I was like, I should say something to give people an idea of the scrutiny that you have to deal with. Um, so the prime example I like to use is you would get a job for, let's say a hundred dollars, but you may end up paying 10 times over or 20 times over what you're going to get paid to do the job. So that's what I was saying earlier is once we get the content, we're on the hook. So if it were to leak from us, we're on the hook. Sorry. Um yeah, so it's it's like to your point, for a ten dollar job I may need a hundred thousand dollar policy. Without yeah. without saying much more. The the scrutiny is very high to the point where yeah, it it let's just say it makes life very, very interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean we go through the same kind of things like because Deluxe does obviously a swath of stuff on prem, right? So um, you, you, the first thing to bear in mind is we're not, doing, we're not holding the original assets or doing things like movie mastering, et cetera, right? We're doing distribution here, right? Um, so it's mezzanine-level assets, not master. So um, there's also how does that factor into things like um, MPAA audits, or CSA, et cetera. So there's alignment that we have to do there in the cloud the same way that you do it um, on-prem, if you will, And there are groups that are looking at that, I mean, Amazon's working on that too, TPM, et cetera, um, to basically uh, figure out a a pattern for different types of workloads, if it's supply chain or rendering or whatever it might be, and what the security controls are around that. Um, So we've actually taken some of those and gone beyond what they have spec'd for security purposes, if you will, just as an example. Yeah, so the question is the crunch portion of the workflow that we showed, uh, where does the machine learning portion run, either on the ingest or the inference, right?
1: Think of the ingest and the delivery as bookends. This runs in the middle, Mm -hmm. kind of in the middle, yeah. Because you'll get the content, we'll do whatever checks we need to do. I'll use a simple one, let's say we virus scan it at the bare minimum, right, before we accept the content. Once the content is accepted, Then you have n number of steps that'll happen in between, maybe in parallel, maybe in sequence, um, until it makes it to delivery. So this would probably be, not probably, this is implicit. It's like an implicit task that happens in parallel. So you get the content. Let's say you get some sort of event or a message. Other services may continue to do what they need to do and react to that event. But in parallel, there may be a spawn off to basically say, you got a fingerprint or run the analysis. But those can happen in parallel, right? But even if you look at that example, we can leverage that too, because then if we do scheduling correctly, we can grab the content once and run multiple processes against that same download.
0: Yeah, because remember, this is this is where things like Nomad, Spark, et cetera, as well as what is your SLA window are really important. Because if you can defer the compute, or if you can run that at a different time, it means you can do things like reduce the amount of EC2 instances you need to do X amount of pieces of content per hour. So that then does things like lowering your cost by deferring that. And the only way you can do that is if you can land the content somewhere on ingest and then process it in parallel, like Abs was talking about. So as content lands coming in through a spare or whatever, it then triggers something that has the ability to trigger multiple workflows to do a whole bunch of things in parallel because it's an S3. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the question is, actually, can you repeat the question? How long did
2: it take for Deluxe to decide, you know what, we're just going to be on the
0: cloud, or did you just do it by attrition, and because you already have a capital equipment? So how long did it take for you guys to? Yeah, so it, it's an ongoing process, right, as, as it is with any large organization that has multiple business units with their own tiers of services. You know, we, we have... We have at least from our perspective, the core up and running, and then everything can migrate at its own speed, right? So if you look at like, what does the architecture look like? There's still connectivity back to on-prem. There are still things that run on-prem potentially, right? So things like direct connect, direct connect gateway, we have all of that stuff in operation, right? So it's more like the, the core is up and the media ingest is flowing through that. And now anything that's ancillary can either lift and shift at their leisure, if you will, and bolt into the platform because the front end APIs are there, um, or potentially re-architect and deploy as a brand new service, if you will.
1: One question. Um, You guys have obviously made a pretty big investment in data science and machine learning. And just broadly speaking, maybe a soft question, what would you say has been your sort of biggest return on investment uh, in this in this area of, of machine learning? Has it been cost reductions, um, quality improvement, product enhancement? I was just kind of generally curious if there has been sort of one area that's yeah, been a huge I, I, I think
0: the, the ML, not ML uh, use case of conformance, it is something that's been, at least from our operations folks, that's been something that's that's been key for them, right? from that perspective, um, from other use cases, like things like auto transcription, et cetera, that we're, that we're looking at. Um, I don't think we've, we're, we're still scratching the surface on that, even though we're pretty far along in terms of like complexity of platform. I think it's more like we have, we have all the pieces in place and now it's figuring out, um, from like, pardon the pun of the title of the talk, but like from an operational perspective, how can we like apply these things to this data that we have, right, to enrich it, if you will, uh, or to better the business from that perspective?
1: I mean, to add to what he just said, um, if you look at traditionally, when you're working with content, there are a lot of steps in the workflow that require you to watch the whole movie, right? Like he said, conformance. You would have to watch it to line up the audio or the subtitle or whatever it is. Hour and a half movie, there's an hour and a half just gone. Mm-hmm. God forbid it's a Bollywood movie, you're stuck for three hours, <laughs> um, right? Um, but I think that, that is where the biggest gain is, is obtained because now we can identify markers and do a pre lineup and now wh- whoever the operator is no longer has to sit at his desk, bleed through a whole movie just finding markers. Yeah. I think that's where the biggest game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Or or think of file names, right? As these files arrive, you, you don't have to have a taxonomy for naming the files if you're fingerprinting them. You can fingerprint something by canceling out the speech track and go, okay, this is potentially the same audio, but in a different language, right? So whatever, if someone makes a typo on the file name before uploading it, it's not something that would block us from ingesting the content. And then if, if you multiply that out by all the amount or pieces of content landing, right, mm. that's, that's a huge one, not to have to even look at that as it gets ingested. Yeah.
2: Good, thanks.
0: I think that's all we have time for, uh, thanks.